Yeah, that was that was good. Happy Father's Day. Uh, we are incredibly blessed in Springhouse to have a lot of great dads. We have a lot of great dads in our body. And so happy Father's Day. I uh, hope that you have some celebrations and some things in store for, for, for the dads out there. We're going to get started uh, today. I believe my slides are about to pop up anytime, and we're going to continue our series uh, from Eugene Peterson's uh, book, Run With the Horses. And uh, so we're going to dive right into our scripture. The message today is titled, Wherever You Are, There You Are. And here we are right now. All right, would you stand with me? We're going to read our scripture together from the message translation. Here we go. This is the message from the God of the angel armies, Israel's God, to all exiles I've taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and make yourselves at home. Put in gardens and eat what grows in that country. Marry and have children. Make yourself at home and work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon, things will go well for you. Yes, believe it or not, this is the message from the God of the angel armies, Israel's God. Don't let all those so-called preachers and know-it-alls who are all over the place there take you in with their lies. Don't pay any attention to the fantasies they keep coming up with to try and please you. They are a bunch of liars preaching lies and claiming I sent them. I never sent them. Believe me, God's decree. This is God's word on the subject. As soon as Babylon's 70 years are up and not a day before, I'll show up and take care of you as I promised and bring you back home. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. When you call on me, when you come and pray to me, I'll listen. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it brings life. And I thank you, Lord, that your presence is here and in our homes. And I ask, Lord, that today, Lord, that your word would go forth, God, and it would, it would spark something within us, Lord, that would cause us to take root in the circumstances that we're in, Father, that we would find you in the midst of all things that are going on, and that you would clear the clutter, that you would clear the distraction, and that you would speak to us clearly, God. I thank you that your word brings life. Lord, everything that's of me, Lord, let it fall and be forgotten. But Lord, the things that are of you, Lord, I pray that they would stick, that they would stay, and that they would change us from the inside out for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today uh, we're talking about um, we're talking about the exile of Judah uh, in in the book uh, and, and the foundation being the book from Eugene Peterson, uh, "Run with the Horses." Uh, we're we're talking about this exile of Judah uh, into into Babylon, and um, it's a really interesting um, and and very uh, very important part of Israel's history. This exile uh, of Judah into into Babylon, and so I felt this morning the way I needed to start so that we can kind of wrap our head around the gravity of this particular passage of Scripture and also this time in history is to go back and give some historical context as to, as to this, this point in history and, and, and why this happened. Uh, the exile of Judah was the, the culmination or it was the result of one of Israel's biggest mistakes that they made well over 450 years prior to this exile. Israel was set free from, from Egypt. And uh, so they were set free from Egypt and Moses led them through the Red Sea and they, they met God at, at Mount Sinai and they, they received the covenant from God, the promise from God. And there they received the 10 commandments. You might know uh, about the 10 commandments. And, and a guy named Bezalel was, was, was appointed to build this ark to, to house these tablets, these, these promises of God. And, and essentially at Mount Sinai, what the, what the agreement was, 
was God said, listen, if, if you will be my people, I will be your God. And, and in that, he took care of them. He, he clothed them. He fed them. He would, he would completely uh, uh, take out anybody who was against them. Uh, he would totally be their God as long as they followed his rules, as long as they made him their, their Lord. And so they, they went forward and they began to, to take over. Uh, they began over to take over the land. And, and for about a 300-year period, the Israelites started to, to fall away from, from, from the Lord. They weren't very good at keeping God's commands. Anybody fall in that boat sometimes? They just, they just weren't very good at keeping God's commands. And for that 300 years, they had these judges that would go in and they would rule over, over Israel. And they would, they would make sure that the decrees of God were followed. When the people would, would act out, they would come before these judges and they would discern what, what was right based on the law, the law of God. And, and so these judges ruled, ruled the land. But 450 years or so uh, before the time of this exile of Babylon, this man is born. His name is Samuel. And Samuel, um, you may know the story. Hannah has this boy named, named Samuel, Samuel, and he, he grows up in the house of the, uh, of the Lord. And, and, uh, and, he's, and he's ministering and, he, and he's prophesying. And the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say something that's going to change the course of history for all of Israel. They go to him and we can find it in the book of 1 first, uh, first Samuel chapter 8. And I'm going to read this. Um, and it's entitled, Israel Asked for a king. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The names of his firstborn was Joel, and the names of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together to come to Samuel. They said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations and what they have. But when they said that, give us a king to lead us, it displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel goes back to the Israel people and says, look, I know you're asking for a king but God is your king. And if you place a man as your king, you're going to suffer because you have rejected God as your king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what a king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will sign to be his commanders of thousands and his commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for the chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When the day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And despite the warning that Samuel gives them, the people refused to listen to Samuel and they said, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us to fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all of these things, the people said, he repeated it before the Lord and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. I wonder how many times in life we actually cry out, I want a king that's other than the Lord. I wonder how many times our circumstances and where we are and the places we go cause us to go to a place that we want something else or someone else to dictate or to line our choices and to tell us what we need to do. I wonder how many times that happens. I know that happens in my life sometimes. Samuel warns Israel, you have a king, but if a king is what you wish, then 
you shall have a king. So in 1052 BC, Israel's first king comes to power. His name was Saul. Many of you know the story of Saul. Saul looked like a king. People could rally behind Saul. He had the stature of a king. And, uh, and as with most humans, Saul also had some character flaws in his, in his, in his ability to lead people and, and just in his life altogether. And so uh, at the midpoint of his life, things started to decline because Saul began to turn away from what God had asked him to do. And so Samuel comes and tells Saul that God is raising up another king who is a guy who is after his own heart, a man after his own heart. And some of you know who that is, and that was David. And so David begins to, to, uh, to he, he's anointed by Samuel. He knows he's going to be the, the king, but Saul is still alive. And in the decline of, 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 of Saul's reign, uh, Saul tries to kill David. So David is running from Saul and then Saul dies. And then David becomes, becomes king after Saul dies. So in 1010 BC, for 40 years, David is going to, to reign over people Israel and he goes to war to bring unity and to peace and to, to bring a cohesiveness to, to uh, all of the people of Israel. And he begins to, he begins to bring restoration where there's restoration needed and he establishes this, this population and he makes uh, Jerusalem the capital of Israel. And he begins to build a city around that. And he builds his palace there. And he then, he also has a desire in his lifetime to build the temple. He wants to build the temple because remember when Bezalel built the ark, it had traveled around with the people, but David had in his heart to build a temple that would house this ark of the covenant, the very presence of, of God. But God would not allow David to be the one to build this temple. So we read in First, uh, First Chronicles uh, chapter 28, King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me out of my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader. And from the tribe of Judah, he chose my family. And from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit in the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I've chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unswerving in carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. And so David did not get to build the temple, but his son who took his throne after he died, Solomon was the one to build the throne. Now you may remember Solomon in the story. God goes to him and says, Solomon, well, I will give you whatever it is you ask for. And Solomon prays to the Lord. And Solomon says, you know, Lord, I, I, God, I want wisdom. I want wisdom to lead your people. And God was so pleased with the request that he gave Solomon wisdom and much more. He gave him long life and he gave him, he gave him the things that he, need, that he needed to, to, to rule. And so, um, we learn in, 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 in uh, the book of 1 Kings, we learn about the building of, of, the, uh, of the temple. Solomon builds this temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. And it, was, and it was so significant, this temple, because it becomes the epicenter of where the presence of God is. It becomes, the temple becomes the, the iconic place for everyone to behold the glory of God. When you read in Scripture, it says, let's all go up to Zion. You would go up to Jerusalem. You would go to the temple of God that was built there. This was a very important place that housed the presence of the living God. And so people would come and it wasn't just open to the, to the Jews, the Hebrews, the, God's people. It was open to foreigners. They could come as well. This is what scripture says. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then Lord, hear them from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as you do your own people Israel. And may you know that this house I have built, built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built, 
then hear from heaven their prayer and plea and uphold their cause. So wherever the people were in Israel, they would point, they would aim toward, they would face toward the temple, toward Jerusalem, toward Zion, and they would, they would pray. So the Lord answers Solomon in this request. He answers uh, Solomon about this temple. And this is significant in connecting. This part, what God says here is it connects to where we are in the scripture today with the exile of Judah. God says this, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple, which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. And he further says this, but if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off from Israel the land I have given them and I will reject this temple I consecrated for my name. Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? But people will answer because they have forsaken the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord has brought this disaster on them. That sounds very familiar. That warning, that tone sounds very familiar to this guy, Jeremiah, that we've been talking about. When he says, for 23 years, I have been giving you warning. I've been telling you, if you don't turn away from these gods, if you don't worship the true living God, if you don't turn away from your evil ways, there's a very similar, similar line of thought, this vein of thought. And these people, Israel, these, these God's people were not, very good at getting the hint, getting the idea, listening to these, these things that were coming down from, from the Lord, really directed from the Lord. And so God, who always fulfills his promises, did so even in this event that we're talking about, uh, talking about today. So Solomon builds the wealthiest and most powerful government with an impossibly high, at an impossibly high cost. And, and the land to the north of Jerusalem had to be sold in order to pay for all of the things that Solomon uh, was doing. More than that, Solomon in, in his older age and his family and his house turned themselves to idols and began to worship foreign gods. And this displeased the Lord. So this gives way to a divided kingdom where, where Israel once was one kingdom. Uh, when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king, uh, uh, this gives way to the division of the kingdom because the people in the north were given to, to forced labor because of all of these extravagancies that Solomon had done. And they did not want to serve Solomon's son on the throne. And so the kingdom became divided. And you had the 10 tribes of northern Israel and you had the, the tribe of Judah. Now you might say, okay, that's 10 plus one, that only equals 11. Well, if you remember back in scripture, the scribe, uh, the tribe rather of Levi, well, they were not assigned a piece of land. They were, that their inheritance was the Lord. So, so of the 11 who were assigned land and territory, the 10 tribes of the north part of, of Israel, they were called Northern Israel. And then Judah remained in Jerusalem. So for another 200 years, a litany of kings who were dishonest, who were disgruntled at times, who uh, were not men of integrity. Uh, they were ineffective, disobedient, and corrupt. These kings led both Judah and, and also the northern uh, Israel until the year of 722 BC, 200 years later, where the Assyrians came in and they wiped out the 10 tribes of Israel and they scattered them abroad. And if you've read, you might, you might have heard it called the, the, lost, the 10 lost tribes of Israel. So Israel, Israel, the 10 tribes, they're dispersed, they're gone. They run them off and, uh, and, they're, and they're gone. And what remains is Judah. And so Judah is here and it's got its own bit of trouble and turmoil going on between Egypt and the, and the, and the area, the area uh, govern, governing uh, officials in other areas. And so this king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a great, powerful king, begins to take over the entire area. And in 586 BC, he goes right into, he goes right into to Judah, Judah and he takes over and he exiles the people of Judah, God's chosen people away from their land. Nearly 450 years prior, Israel went 
to Samuel and said, we want a king. And this event, this exile, this, this exile was the culmination. It was the result of a people who said, I want a king. Because in this exile was the last king that would show their, his face uh, of Judah. At this time, in this exile, things would change in the people's hearts and things would change for the people of, of Judah. Something unthinkable happens though in this process. The unimaginable happens in this process. Not only were the people exiled from the land of Judah, but Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he burns down this temple. Now that is huge because even in the timeline of Israel, whether they had a king who followed the Lord or not, the temple still remained. The temple was established. That was the place where God, God's presence resided. But if you remember what Samuel's warning was and what God said to Samuel is, I will, I will destroy this temple if you do not obey me and follow my commands. So we see the prophecies here. We see the scriptures coming to life. We see that God's promises are unfolding in our life. And let me tell you something, God's promises in your life will always unfold. He'll always do what he said he's going to do. And, and we see this unfold in the population of God's people and, and their life. And so with the temple being gone and these people having to leave their home, dejected, refused, without any of their stuff, without any of their belongings, they're going into a foreign land and their temple is destroyed. It calls into question the legitimacy of their God. It calls into question everything that they have believed. It calls into question all the peoples around saying, what is up with your God now who, who has destroyed this temple and these people have lost the land that had been promised to them? So they had to leave their homes, the belongings in their life and the temp temple. This exile was the promised destruction from God for both demanding a king and for, for refusing to obey. And as tragic as that was, two specific things happened in this exile that are really, really quite wonderful. Two specific, wonderful, great things come out of this. And anytime God is, is in control and he's got a plan, wonderful things will manifest themselves. The first is this, because of the exile, the people who were exiled, they were forced into a position where their hearts, their hearts who at some were hard, some were complacent, some were divided, their hearts had to turn to search out and to know God for themselves. You see, when they put the king in, in, in front of them, when they decided to have a king, they let the king determine. If the king loved the Lord, then the people loved the Lord and they would follow him. And if, and if, the, if the king didn't love the Lord, then the, king would follow the, the, the people would follow the king in that direction. But this gave way for Israel to say, for, 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 for the people of Judah to say, no, I've, I've, got to, I've got to search the scripture for myself. I need to get in touch with this God who, who actually loves me. But, but more than that, second, the second thing that happens is with the king abdicating the throne and there being no more king, man king of, of Judah, what this does is this sets up the opportunity for the prophetic announcement of Jesus, the King of Kings, to set up his throne for Israel and for all peoples. It is a wonderful and necessary event that happens, this exile of Judah, that opens up this window, this awesome opportunity for God to say, you don't have a king, but I'm going to send a king that's gonna rule and reign forever and ever and ever Amen and amen. So that gives us a little bit of historical context to, to where we're going today. And so we're looking at this passage of scripture that's kind of odd because Jeremiah is writing this letter to these exiles that have been going over, over to, 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 uh, to Babylon. Now, now here's the thing. Israel, the people of God are, are not strangers to exile. The definition we're gonna, we're gonna be working with, with in terms of exile is this, being where we don't wanna be and or with people we don't wanna be with. Have you ever been in a place where you don't want to be? Have you ever been with people you don't want to be with? I think, I think that happened to me this week. Okay. I, there are times in our lives where we don't want to be where we are and we don't want to be with the people we are, are with. You know, if we can be, if we can just be honest with ourselves, you know, and we really like to be in control. And, and most of the time we are in control. You know, I call, I'll call some people and say, Hey, you want to come over and hang out? And the first question out of their mouth is who's going to be there? And I think to myself, sometimes I want to respond with, well, I'm going to be there, you know, I, but, but we dictate where we're going to go and what we're going to do based on who's going to be there, where it's going to be. Do I want to fit in? Because we don't like to be in places we don't want to be. And we don't want to be with people we don't want 
to be with. So, so that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a paradigm that we're actually usually in control of. But what happens when we're not in control? What happens when we find ourselves in work situations or in family situations or in dynamics where we are with people we do not want to be with? What are we supposed to do then? And that's some of the things we're going to talk about right now. And I think Jeremiah has some some things to say really uh, about that. But Israel, God's people, they're not, they are no stranger to exile. In fact, the entire gospel narrative starts off with an exile. It is Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden because of their disobedience to God. Uh, and so they, they, they were certainly familiar and, and, and save their exile, we wouldn't be probably in the, in the position we, we, we're in because sin would have not entered the world. But because of that, they could not be with God. So they were exiled from God's, from God's presence. Joseph, Joseph knew about exile, didn't he? One day he was favored by his father. He had everything he needed. He, he was known as the dreamer and that didn't change. But overnight, he became a slave. Overnight, his brothers uh, sold him into slavery, exiled from his family and from his people. Moses, Moses had, had a whole life of exile from, from even when he was a baby, when his mama put him in a basket and, and puts, him in the, puts him in the river so that, so that uh, Pharaoh's uh, family can, can, can find him. And, and he grows up in Pharaoh's house, not his people, exiled from his family. And then, he, and then he's exiled uh, from, from there because he kills one of the Egyptians who's ruling over, uh, over his people. And so he runs out into the wilderness and exiles himself there. And then he comes back and then obviously he frees uh, and leads the people of, uh, of Egypt, the Hebrews out of Egypt and, and uh, leads them into, into, the, into the wilderness. So he's, he, he's familiar with exile. David, I don't think David was where he wanted to be when Saul was trying to hunt him down and kill him. David, he experienced uh, uh, certain types of exile. And of course, Israel, Israel itself in, in the wilderness, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience and their complaining uh, to, to God. They, they experienced this, this sense of, I don't want to be here. And in some ways, they probably didn't want to be with some of the people that they were with. But today we're talking about Judah. Today we're talking about that population that was exiled uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came and said, "I'm going to exile you, and you're going to have to lead, uh, leave this, leave this place." And this exile was different than 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 the other exile, the other the other domination of the of the ten tribes of Israel. This this exile was was different, where the others were scattered. This exile happened in a group, and it only happened with a select group of people, a majority of the population, but it was all of the elite people. It was the artisans, the craft, craftsmen, the leaders of the population. All of these people, 10,000 in total, were asked to, to leave, not asked, they were told and forced to leave uh, Judah and go into to Babylon. Now, Babylon was a city devoted to materialism and sensual pleasure. Now, I find that a bit ironic that the exile, the exile is going toward a place of materialism and sensual pleasure because those were the things that kept Israel from following God in the first place. Poor, uh, poor, the poor of Judah were left, the, 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 the weak, the, the lame, the children of Judah were left in Jerusalem. So there were still a representation there in Judah and a majority of people were exiled over in, in Babylon. So you had two places representing Judah. And I wonder what the attitudes of both places were. I think probably for the poor, when the elitists leave and the leaders leave, that opens up lots of land, lots of opportunity that you don't have because all of the people who are hogging all that stuff left. So they probably were in a position of saying, man, this exile, exile, it's not too bad. These circumstances might not be too bad. Now, of course, they were poor and, and, and not well educated. So they really didn't probably have a vision. They probably couldn't sustain themselves. And, and the book of Lamentations is written in this period. And so there's a lot of tears and a lot of crying happening during this time. And so we read all about that. But these elitists over here, they're going over here and boy, they are full of bitter complaints. They are just frustrated. And guess what? The leaders of the day, the leaders of that time aren't helping the situation at all because all they're doing is allowing the people of Judah, the exiles to wallow in their self-pity. Have you ever had a leader that told you what you wanted to hear instead of what you needed to hear? Godly leaders who are in your life will not just tell you what you want to hear. And the reason for that is, is because a godly leader understands while they have many to love, they only have one to please. 
And in that pleasing that one, that God, uh, the God of their life, they're going to say the things and speak the things into your life that are gonna be of greatest benefit to you. And sometimes that's not what we want to hear. You know, we're really good at complaining. I'm sure the people, the exiles, they were really good at complaining. And it was, and it, it was furthered by having leaders who perpetuated the complaints, was it not? And so they're complaining and they're bitter and they're frustrated. We're really good of, about finding people to complain with. We don't readily go and, and to the source of our, to our, of our disdain. You know, when, when, when we're upset about an institution or some type of leadership or whatever, very rarely will we go and confront the issue head on. We'll go and try to find people to ally with us in our line of thinking, but that's not God's way. And so these false teachers, these, these false prophets are all around these people of, of, of Judah and they're, they're breeding discontent and they're telling them false hope. They're giving them false hope. This is what Eugene Peterson says, false dreams interfere with honest living. As long as the people thought that they might be going home at any time, it made no sense to engage in committed, faithful work in Babylon. These leaders were telling all of, the, all of God's people, you're going home soon. Don't worry, about, don't worry about this. God's got it. God's gonna deliver us. God's gonna totally rescue us from this. But it wasn't the truth. That wasn't from the Lord. God had exiled them for a period of seven, 70 years. They were going to stay, stay put. And so these leaders were not leading them in, in the right way. And so we like to complain. It is infectious. I have literally seen lives destroyed based on false dreams encouraged by weak leaders. I'm a person who believes that God miraculously can open a door, but he also miraculously can close it in your face. If you're standing still, I believe that faith is, uh, faith. the scripture says without faith, it's impossible to please God. If, if you're sitting there and you're waiting for a door to open, sometimes you have to get up and you have to step through the door. Sometimes you have to get up and, and do something because that produces faith. That's a step of faith and that pleases, that pleases God. But what some of us do is we sit back and we just, we just allow these, these teachings of God's just going to just miraculously let it plop in your lap. And I'm not saying God can't do that. But if you've got starving children at home and you're not working because you're waiting on a miraculous move of God to provide work for you, you probably got your priorities out of line. That's probably not from the Lord. God is, a, God is not a God who is going to succumb to our desires and negate the responsibilities that we have. He's going to, uh, he's going to, he always works in order. He's always going to be considering the, the, the people that are connected to us and the things. He's a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. And so sometimes we can, we can connect our, ourselves with people saying things that we want to hear instead of the things that we really need to hear. And so knowing... <clears throat> I believe knowing, uh, knowing what you're called to and knowing when you're supposed to go, those are two very distinct things. Those are two very different, different things. But what about Jeremiah? Like, where was he in this? Was he over here with the, with the poor and the, and the lame? Or was he over here with the elitist? No, the Bible tells us that Jeremiah was left here in, in Judah. And what that says about Jeremiah is he was not looked upon as a leader. It, it, what it says about Jeremiah is that people paid no attention to him. It, it, it said that he did not have a status in their life or, or a vein to speak in. But yet, uh, but yet in this gracious posture, Jeremiah crafts this letter. Now, I believe Jeremiah could have. My flesh would have done this. I've been sitting here for 23 years telling you all this was going to happen. So pff, here it is. Suck it up, buttercup. You know, I mean, go, go deal with life, right? 23 years, I've been screaming. You guys have, have totally disregarded everything I've said. So now pay your penance. But no, in an act of grace, in an act of love, Jeremiah pins this letter to them directly from, from the Lord. It would have been so easy for, for Jeremiah to have, to have reveled in human satisfaction. Have you ever had people in your life who were satisfied by your failure? Have you ever had people in your life who have seen you fail and they, and they got a kick, a kick out of that? You know, as broken and weak humans, we are prone to not really rally around other success. 
You know, I don't, there are people, there are people in my life who don't want me to be successful. And I'm sure there are people in your life who don't really truly want you to be successful. And it's because we're broken. It's because we are, we are a flawed, broken people who are very selfish and very self-centered. And, I, and I'm that way too. I, I, I'm flawed in that way too. And we need God to allow us to have, to have eyes to see others the way he sees them, not the way that we see them. And then we need to respond based on the way God sees us, not the way others see us. And so kingdom success is not defined by what others think about you. It's defined by your obedience to God. So here's this poor second rate Jeremiah who's been cast down and he writes this letter. And Eugene Peterson uh, puts it uh, in his book as well, uh, an extra part to it. But he says this, build houses and make yourselves at home. This is Jeremiah writing. Put in gardens and eat what grows in that country. Marry and have children. Make yourself at home and work for the country's welfare. Eugene Peterson says this, quit sitting around and feeling sorry for yourselves. The aim of a person's faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible to deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty and act out love. Basically what they're saying there, both Jeremiah and Eugene Peterson, but basically what they're saying there is you need to root. You need to root. I want you to look at this beautiful tree. Green, luscious, flat. I mean, it's just a, it's a gorgeous tree. Have you ever seen a gorgeous tree before? That's a gorgeous, a gorgeous tree. That tree is succumbed to all of the different seasons of the year. There are times when that tree is going to have bad looking leaves. There's times when that tree is going to have no leaves at all. There's times when that tree is going to be moving because of the storm. But what keeps that tree planted there and what gives life to that tree and what makes it be beautiful like that are the roots that are underneath that tree. And if we look at the roots that are underneath the tree, they are nowhere near as pleasant as what's out on the top. Because guys, the roots of our life, they are messy. Our lives are messy. Everything about what, everything that goes on to help make what the fruit that comes out of our life is messy and twisted and wound up. And, but where we root and where we suck life is manifested all the time at the top. Wherever we're drawing life from, it's going to manifest itself and, and, and come out. Life is so messy. And the hearts of God's people in this exile, the hearts of God's people, they were rooted in Him. We're, we are constantly, we are constantly succumbed to, to all of these different things in our life that come our way. These different types of storms, these different attitudes of life, these different attitudes toward our circumstances and the things that we've got going on. All of these things uh, make, their, make their head in our, uh, make their appearance in, in our life at some time and they affect what's going on with our tree. If our tree's in despair, if our life is in despair, we might look barren at that time, but the roots are there to hold us still. The roots are there to give us life. The roots are there to establish who we are and where we are. And Jeremiah is a saying to these exiled people, you need to root because you're not going anywhere. 70 years, you know, that's a lifetime pretty much. 70 years, you're going to be rooted in the same place. Figure out how to do life where you are. Some of you are in situations that you don't like. Some of you are in working environments that you don't like. Some of you are in places where God has called you and you don't like the people you're with or where you are. And what God is saying is you need to root and you need to stay because God has some really wonderful things he's going to do in you and through you in that place. God is so good. We're always looking to better ourselves. It always seems there's this new thing. I go on social media and I'll see this new thing on social media where it's a health plan or some type of exercise plan or, or make your life better, organize yourself, all these things. And we're so, we're so striving to make our lives better. And we will sacrifice much for a sense of better. Israel demanded a king. So they sacrificed God because they thought it would be better. Sometimes we make things so good that there's no room left for God. In 2014, I took a trip to Africa. And uh, I went with Pastor Bruce and, um, you know, some of the youth that were, were here, I was able to, to kind of lead them. And uh, I remember these prep meetings leading up to this time going to Africa. And um, 
And during this time, Pastor Bruce always would preface and he would always say, we're going to be group focused and we're going to be group minded and we're going to watch God provide our needs. No matter what happens, we can trust God to meet our needs. He will meet us where we are. And I knew that. I knew that was true. I, I believed that with all of my heart, but I didn't know that God was going to meet me on this particular trip the way that he did. And so leading up to the trip, and I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip, you know, sometimes there's some, there's some things that happen before you do things where God's about to make a big move that, that just seem to mess with you, you know? And, uh, you know, leading up to that trip about two weeks uh, prior and leading up to that trip, uh, we had, we had a, a couple or two uh, leave the church here. And I had had lunch with uh, several individuals who were just basically vomiting their disdain for some things that we were doing here, the way things look, how they felt about things, you know? Real good preparation to go on this mission trip. And so I, uh, I'm, I'm, in this, I'm in these meetings and then these lunches or whatnot, and I just started to come to church and I, and I started to take personal responsibility for these people who were leaving the church. I started to, I started to come in and, 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 and instead of really engaging God and worshiping God, I started to come in and I started to develop a critical mind about the way things looked because I wanted people to stay. I didn't want people to be dis disgruntled. What did it look like out front? What did it look like from the stage? What kind of songs were we doing? What did it look like in our house? What were we allowing to happen? All these things were in my mind. All these things I would come and I would judge the service all throughout the service. And so that's how I left here to go on that, that mission trip. Now, I'm going to tell you something that you may not know. I said before, I like to travel, but I like to travel for leisure. And mission trips are not my idea of leisure. I don't like to go on mission trips. I'm not comfortable on mission trips. But I tell you what, God has never allowed my comfort to be a prerequisite to my obedience. And so, being obedient to him, I went on this mission trip and, and I packed for this mis, uh, mission trip very meticulously. Now, here's the thing. I'm just an eclectic type of fella. I don't know how to dress for a mission trip. This is the type of outfit I would probably pack for a mission trip to Africa. Not the right outfit to pack, but this is what I would, this is probably something that would be in my suitcase. And I'd probably pack an abundance of clothes because I just don't know what I'm supposed to wear, I'm supposed to do. And so I pack all of these things. And, you know, Bruce is saying, you know, God will meet our needs. And I'm thinking, yeah, I just, let me pack this trail mix. God's meeting my need for food, okay? Let me pack these trousers. God's meeting my need for, for, for my style. Let me pack my trees. all these things, you know, and I've got this whole plan. And so we get to, uh, we get to Kenya, to the airport after two long eight-hour flights, and we're all standing there, and all the luggage is coming off the conveyor belt, except for mine. Now, if you know me, that's a problem. <laughs> and, uh, and, and as soon as I realized that my luggage was not there, Bruce's words popped in my head. God will provide your needs. God will provide what you need. And so I was hopeful that God would provide my need like within the next few hours, but God did not provide my need within the next few hours, at least the need that I thought I wanted or, or what, I, what I thought I needed. And so uh, we were heading from there. We had to get on another airplane and I think we had to get on, it was crazy. We went to a place called Mbita. And if I were to tell you how to get there, it's between the two trees and the cow that has crossed the road. That's all I know. There's nothing there. It's big open land. And there are a lot, there, there are people, there are kids that come out of, the woodwork. I don't know where they're from, but they all came to this uh, kids camp. And it was, it was delightful that they all came. I didn't know where they, where they came from. And many of them walked from many miles to, to, to get there. So anyway, so we go to this, um, this place, Mabita, and I'm, and I'm on the phone as much as I have service with the airport. And I'm trying to explain to them. And the people at the airport don't even know where Mbita is. They don't even know what I'm talking about when I'm saying that. So I am, I am getting very uh, anxious and, and I'm also getting very discouraged because all of my stuff is there. I have a backpack on and my backpack has my trail mix, my Bible, my notepad, and as I, I think two shirts. Uh, needless to say, I was wearing jeans and hiking boots that day. So, you know, any type of shoe wear I was going to wear that time was going to be a hiking boot, whether I was wearing shorts or not. And so uh, it was, it was, it was, a, it was, it was a tragedy in my mind. It really wasn't in the real world, but it was a tragedy in my mind. And so I get there and uh, we are in the middle of the summer. So it's hot. It's, we wake up, it's 85 degrees. It's 90, 95 in the afternoon. And after two days of wearing the same clothes, you know, I'm sweating in places that you should never sweat. And, um, and I just, I'm, I need to get out of these clothes. And Pastor Bruce comes to me and says, why don't you go with Bob? Bob was one of the people that were on, was on site. They're a good friend of mine now. And he said, uh, he'll take you to go get some clothes. So we go and, um, you know, of course, I'm thinking, where's the Target? 
you know, where, where are we going to get this? And he takes me to a house of a guy named Hezron and he takes me to a couple other houses. And all of these people are the nicest people I could ever meet. And Bob explained the situation and they came in and they opened their closets and they said, whatever we have is yours. Whatever you want, you can take whatever it is, just take it and you can actually keep it. Just whatever it is, just, just take it. And I went in there and I looked at all of the clothes and, and uh, needless to say, you know, the clothes that I grabbed and the clothes that are there, they're not washed with Tide detergent. They're not washed on American standards, you know, they're washed on African standards. And, um, and so I remember gathering all these clothes and I went out to the, to the little place where you took a shower and it was a spigot with extremely cold water and I was splashing myself and, and doing that. And I remember, I remember pulling out... Um, remember pulling out these underwear, not these underwear, but this pair of underwear. And, um, and I remember standing there and I remember putting on these underwear. I remember putting on these underwear and as I was putting on these underwear, they were not this white. And um, I put on these underwear and I just started to weep. I just started to weep. And I just was so humiliated. And I was so humbled in that moment because I didn't, I was in a place I didn't want to be. I was with people I didn't want to, uh, because of the circumstances, I didn't want to be with them. And I didn't have anything to my name that was mine. Everything was uncomfortable. And I just asked God, I said, God, why would you bring me to a place? Why would you bring me to this place and do this to me? Because God, I know you love me and I know your word says that you'll provide for me. But God, I mean, and I, yes, perhaps it's a bit vain or whatever, but man, I, just, I don't have anything. And I just, I just kind of cried out to the Lord in my little, my little self-pity in my corner there. And um, the Lord just started to minister to my heart. And he said, Kevin, I don't look on the outward appearance I look on what's on the inside. And he started to minister to me about the conversations that I was having prior to the mission trip. And he said, everything that's on the inside will at some point be exposed on the outside. And he said, the church is not your idea. It's my idea. He said, that church is my idea. And he said, when you go to that church, you are to serve and you are to love people and you are to worship me. You're not, try you're not to try to make things better. And I was just in there. I was just so humiliated and, and just humbly just bowed before the Lord in tears. And I said, Lord, please forgive me because I have so missed it. I have so missed you. And so the Lord just took me through that through that time. And, and sometimes we have to get to a place of humil humiliation. We have to get to a place where he strips us of everything before we really can hear from him and what he's saying and know his heart. And so and so uh, I go through the rest of the trip wearing other people's clothes and people were so gracious. And I'm so glad I had that encounter with God because I met the sweetest kids and I met the sweetest individuals. And at the end of that trip, right on that last leg in Mbita, there was this small little shack that was like a post office and literally in the middle of nowhere. And we're in the middle of that big kids camp with a thousand kids. And this is just the faithfulness of God. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional, but this is just the faithfulness of God because we're in the middle of Africa right in the shack of Mbita, uh, of this place of Mbita. And there's this shack and, and Kurt Bryson comes up to me right in the middle of the kid's day. And I'm playing with the kids and he says, let's go right now. It's our last day. We're about to leave and go to another part of the, of the continent. So let's go right now and check one more time. This would be the last hope that we would have to see your bag. And I said, no, I really want to play with these kids right now. And he says, no, let's, let's go right now because I can go. So I hop on the motorcycle and we take off. And as we pull up to this shack, this, this man is walking out, he's locking the door and he walks away and Kurt yells out at him and he, he comes by and he says, my friend has, has lost his bag from the airport. They were supposed to drop it off. And he said, yes, about 30 minutes ago, your bag was dropped off right here. And I got to get my bag and all of my belongings after 10 days, after 10 days of being in that situation, that state, all of that thing. And God said, I will always fulfill my promise to you. I will always take care of your needs, but your needs and what your wants and your desires don't don't always line up with what my needs and my desires for you are, Kevin. And you need to line them up with me is what God was trying to minister to me in that moment. And so in this story, what happens is these exiles they're the, of Judah, they are in, they're in Babylon. 
and they're enclosed um, metaphorically. They're enclosed that they don't, they're not comfortable in. They're in, they're in places that they don't like. They're with people that they don't like. They find themselves not comfortable at all. They find them in that state that I was in in Africa. And it says, uh, Eugene says here, they wrote and copied and pondered the vast revelation that had come down from them, from Moses and from the prophets. And they came to recognize the incredible riches of their scriptures. They found that their God was not dependent of a place. He was not tied to familiar surroundings. The violent dislocation of the exile shook them out of their comfortable but reality-distorting assumptions and allowed them to see the depths and the heights that they had never imagined before. They lost everything that they thought was important and found what was important. They found God. Guys, we too have been exiled. We too have been exiled, exiled because if you are a believer, you know that this is true, that this is not our home. This is not our home. And if we become so comfortable with, our, with this place, if we become so comfortable with our surroundings, if we start to try working so hard to make everything so much better all of the time, then we won't leave room for God to really be in the throne room of our house. We will end up putting a king on a throne when he needs to be the king of our, of our life. Does that make sense? And so we've been promised an eternal king, an eternal home. This is what Philippians 2 says. But there's far, there's far more to life for us. We're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting on the arrival of a savior, the master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same power skill by which he's putting everything as it should be under and around him. Worship team, you can come on up. And in the meantime, when we are waiting for that day for him to split the sky, we need to plant, we need to work, we need to marry, we need to root in to where we are and we need to discover the richness of God from the vantage point of where we are. We need to lay down our desires. We need to lay down the things that, that, that give us instant gratification and we need to line up our purposes and our desires with His. And if those roots are rooted in Him, it doesn't matter where we are, we will manifest the fruits of the Spirit. We will manifest Him on the outside because what is on the inside will always come on and the out, outside. As soon as Babylon 70 years are up and not a day before I'll show up and take care of you as I promised and bring you back home. God says, I know what I'm doing. Somebody today needs to know that God knows what he is doing. Your life seems to be all messed up. Something tragic may have happened and you had to take a left turn. Things are all out of sorts in your life. You're frustrated, you're displaced, you don't understand what's going on. And God is saying, I know what I'm doing. Root in, root in, root in to what he's doing. Root into the life and allow him to be the king and the Lord of your actions. Allow him to govern and to speak truth in your life. Don't listen to the people around you that are, that are making you sway the other way, but listen to this all-powerful, star-breathing God who created you in your mother's womb, has a hope and a future and a plan for your life. Last week, last week, Barbie talked about repentance. And it so resonated with my heart, this whole message of repentance, because I tell you what, we can really identify those big boulders in our life that we need to turn from, can't we? But sometimes we don't readily and easily recognize the bad attitude. We don't readily recognize the gossip. We don't readily recognize the dissension. We don't readily recognize the years that we could be living in a habitual pattern that doesn't take us anywhere. And it's those attitudes of the heart that really cause a need for us to repent so that we can get on that straight and narrow, so that we can enter through that gate. Because out of the abundance of the heart, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, things flow. So what's on the inside is gonna manifest on the outside. God knows what he's doing. And this message that Jeremiah sent to Babylon, it was a message of hope. It was a mess. And he has that same message of hope for us. The same message of hope in this Savior. He's coming. He's coming back. I promise you, he's coming. His word says it and I believe it. He's coming back and you will never have it so bad that you can't cling to the hope of the cross of Jesus Christ.